right, good morning again, everybody. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? We're moving verse by verse through Philippians, and we are in the fourth chapter. Uh, my plan originally was to tackle verses 1 through 9, but we are only going to get to verse 7, and the title is Anxious for Nothing. Uh, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand for the reading of God's Word together with me? Philippians 4. We pick it up at verse 1, and it reads this way. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Philippians 4.1, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, verse 3, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. There's our title. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, as we think about this text, there's a promise that as we make a petition to you or our petitions, what we will get back is the promise of peace, the shalom of God, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. So right now, we're going to ask for that peace to fall on your people. Since that's the promise in the text, we're going to ask that that peace would be ours and that we would realize it, even if it's beyond what we can comprehend. We're going to walk in it. We're going to receive it. We're going to rest in it. And we're going to ask, Lord, right now for your help as we deal with a very <laughs> vital issue for all of us. That is the issue of anxiety and worry. We all have these challenges, Lord. We admit it. And we want to learn how to be anxious for nothing. Would you help us as we teach the word, as we receive the word, as we act upon the word of God, as we stand upon your promises? I pray you'd be setting us free more and more from worry and anxiety. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Philippians 4, 1 through 7, anxious for nothing. I was asking myself this week, is it possible to go a day without being anxious? Uh, the word anxious, if you're taking notes, and I'm going to give you several things. I'm going to try to give you everything I got to give you tools from the text to deal with anxiety. But I was asking myself this week, is it possible to just be not anxious, to just take a day where anxiety and tension is not the norm? I was getting at a definition. The definition of anxiety in the original language literally means to be a divided or pulled apart in different directions. And that's kind of how we feel with worry and anxiety. We feel pulled apart. We feel kind of untangled. And sometimes we feel like a bit of a mess. We don't know what to do. We can feel overwhelmed by anxiety. And we know that medical doctors t tell us about anxiety that it can have physical effects. It can affect your digestion. It can affect your balance. It can affect your mood. It can affect other uh, organs in your life. I mean, there's so much. 
And so many of us live, you know, kind of in this constant tension. We feel pulled in multiple directions. Maybe that's just where you're at uh, in terms of your life and your busyness and all of that. Uh, I would ask you maybe at the outset of the message is what is your number one worry? You know, when they do studies on worry and they ask people, what are your main worries? People talk about the fear of failure being a number one worry. It could be past failures. It could be uncertainty about the future. Some of you are younger and you're thinking about your career or who you're going to marry or relationships. And it could be fear of failure. Am I going to fail? Will I, will I have the goods? Will I do well enough to make it? That's certainly a fear. People talk about the fear of the future. The future is unknown to us. We don't know what's going to happen. So we can get nervous about that. We can get nervous about family and friends and health. And, you know, are we going to have enough? Are we going to, you know, be able to get where we want to go? And we, we fear even our health and stuff like that. The fear of death is a very real issue as well. I mean, uh, you know, the fear of death, the Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 2, that enslaves people. And many people are just fearful of their own mortality. And what does that mean? You know, the second uh, fear next to the fear of death is actually the fear of public speaking. Uh, and I'm not kidding. People really do fear public speaking. And this is what the Lord has me doing twice a week. Uh, you know, I tried to act like I was sick on oral report day. That tells you how much I wanted to do public speaking. And now that's all the Lord has, him, has me doing. The Lord does have a sense of humor. But Dr. Walter Calvert uh, years ago did a survey he reported that uh, his, his reportings indicated that only 8% of the things people worried about were legitimate matters of concern. The other 92% were either imaginary, never happened, or involved matters over which people had no control anyway. One writer puts it this way, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who sat on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which had never happened. Close quote. And you guys know how worry is, right? We, we start to build these imaginary scenarios and monsters in our mind, much of which never comes to pass. And it can bring insomnia, and we can, be, we can have physical effects and mental effects, all because we have a battlefield going on in our mind. And we all know that when we have a lot on our mind, we can lose sleep, we can just, you know, create scenarios. We can replay conversations. We can do all the what ifs, shoulda, woulda, coulda, if only, all of that stuff. And somebody once said that worry is almost like being in a rocking chair. You move a lot, but you get absolutely nowhere. And that's what worry is. But worry is a very real issue for all of us. It's an issue for me. I'm sure it's an issue for you. Because worry is really just an expression of concern, right? And oftentimes when we worry, it's because we feel a bit out of control. We feel like, you know what, I'd like to control this scenario, but I don't know what to do with it. And so we just worry and we bite our nails and we do all these things. Worry could be defined this way. And this is a very important definition for you and I this morning. Worry is becoming infatuated or stuck on an issue, but it's staying stuck there. Every one of us is going to have worries and concerns. It's inevitable. They come at us in life. But, but anxiety comes when we stay stuck in a worry. 
And we begin to mull it over and mull it over until it becomes a mountain in our lives. That's what anxiety is. It's worrying about things and then staying stuck there. So focused on this one issue. And it brings mental uh, distress and agitation. And of, of course, we feel like we're being pulled apart. What are we to do? Is there a biblical remedy for that which ails, I think, all of us? There is. And I'm going to give you all I can give you in the text, four imperatives, and there's going to be some other things as well. You say, what's an imperative, Pastor Michael? It's a command or an urgent priority, a necessity of vital importance for godly living or living without anxiety. That's an imperative. So the first imperative is in one of this text in Philippians, and it says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, first imperative, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, of the four commands or things of vital importance in the text, Paul says, stand firm. The idea is just like it sounds. The Greek word stako means to persevere, to persist, to keep one standing. It describes a soldier standing at his post. Here, it is a military command. And Paul is addressing the larger congregation. So he's saying, in essence, stand together. Stand firm against the onslaught of the culture, the onslaught of spiritual warfare, and also the onslaught of worries that come and flood our minds often. Stand firm against that. Don't let yourself be toppled over by an avalanche of worry. Now, the guy writing it is not writing it from an ivory tower, right? He's not sipping a cool drink on a beach somewhere. The guy's chained to a Roman soldier. And he writes to a church as if to say this. Look, there's many things I could be worried about, Paul might say. I'm, in, I'm in, under house arrest. But I'm telling you that worry can be overcome even if your circumstances are not perfect. Now here we are, we're all living in the United States, we all have different issues going on, but none of us are sitting in a prison right now. None of us are going through perhaps even severe persecution. So if Paul can say it, maybe we can learn something as well, amen? And he says, stand firm in the Lord. Now a few pages back in Ephesians 6, just literally a couple pages, turn back with me, uh, Paul is talking about spiritual warfare to the Ephesian church, and he says these words with the first imperative in mind. He says these words, Finally, 10, Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to, what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, Paul outlines spiritual warfare that it's... Uh, spiritual against forces of wickedness, not human beings. And he says, therefore, 13, take up, Ephesians 6, 13, the armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to, here it is again, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I'm not going to teach through the armor of God, but I think you can see the idea here, the connecting concept. Standing firm has to happen through spiritual endowment. In this case, the metaphor is the armor of God. It's not real armor. It's not physical armor. It's spiritual endowment. How do you get spiritually endowed from on high? How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you put on the armor? How do you put on the new man? One of the ways you do that is through prayer. 
You ask the Lord for help. You ask him to fill you afresh with, your, with his Holy Spirit. You begin to move your eyes away from the problem to the God of solution. Amen? This is how you stand firm, my beloved. You remember in the running metaphor, Paul says, I'm forgetting what is behind and I'm pressing forward to what lies ahead. Some of us get stuck in the past. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some value to going back there at least to find healing and, and God's forgiveness and then move on. But some of us keep replaying past things that happened to us. Uh, it could be a hurt. It could be a traumatic event. It could be, uh, you know, a disagreement or even a major hurt like a, a breakup or something. And we stay stuck there. Remember that worry is replaying something and staying stuck there. You're going to have things come into your mind. It's unavoidable, but you don't have to stay stuck there. And that's the point. Forget what lies behind. Listen, I heard a pastor say it this way, and, and it was well said. You can't change yesterday. It's already occurred. Amen? And you can't control tomorrow, but you can live without anxiety today. Right? So this is usually what we do is we get stuck on the past, what woulda, shoulda, couldas, if onlys, or the fear of the future. What if this happens? What if that? But we can't control any of that stuff. Can't change the past, can't control the future, but we can live for God's glory today without being overwhelmed by anxiety because today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So the resurrection is coming. This is who we are. We don't have to stay stuck. Here's another sub point, and this is not one of the imperatives, but it's in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice Paul says, My beloved brethren, I long to see you, my joy and crown. And then at the end, he says, My beloved. I found something about worry. Worry is when I am unduly focused on self. Our world is so worried about perception, social media presence. What does so-and-so think of me? What does such-and-such think about me? Most people don't think about you as much as you think they think about you, first of all. So when my eyes move away from me to other people, how many times have you seen Paul in a New Testament letter say, I pray for you guys night and day? When I think about you, it, it brings joy to my heart. Look, think about people in your life that God has brought in, blessed relationships. Pray for people. When you get your eyes off of yourself, you are less apt to have anxiety because you're more concerned about the needs of others. So maybe you're having difficulty sleeping. Look, we, we can all deal with that. Start praying for other people. Look, if you're going to be up anyway, you might as well pray for other people. And you'll be amazed at how many people will all of a sudden come to your heart and mind. I heard a story of a, a man, he was uh, in a, on a mission field. I think it was, he was in Africa. And uh, he was late for a meeting. And so the only way he could get there on time was to cross this open plain where wild animals were known to run. And so he said, you know, I'm going to be late and I got to get there. So I'm just going to go across the open plain. So he went across the open plain and he heard the, the hoofs of charging rhinoceros. It was a whole, I don't know what you call them. A whole group of them were coming and they were coming right at him. And he had nowhere to go. 
And so he fell to his knees, this is a literal story, and prayed, oh Lord, spare me. And all of a sudden they came and they passed by him and not one of them hit him. And it was a huge group of them. And he was spared by the Lord. He made it to the meeting, preached the gospel. He found out years later that someone had woken up in the middle of the night and felt an urge to pray for him. And when they aligned the calendars and the time zones, that urge to pray for him was right as those rhinoceroses were charging him. This is the Lord. And he doesn't need us to pray to deliver one of his saints. But he certainly uses our prayers as a means to his ends. And so this is the beauty of prayer is we, we focus on other people. We love other people. Notice Paul's heart, my joy, my crown. It's you. Stand firm. Verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Suntuke, these are two women in the Philippian congregation, to live in harmony in the Lord. Now Paul's been calling for unity in verse 127, a life worthy of the gospel. Philippians 2, 2 and 3, to be unified in heart and mind. And he even told us to have the attitude of Christ in Philippians 2, 5, to put others' interests above our own. Now he gets to the heart of an issue in the Philippian congregation. Two women, two godly women, two warriors of the gospel, as we'll see in a moment, were at odds with one another. Their names were Euodia and Suntuke. The issue that they had with one another, we don't know. Paul does not address it, but I will say this. If it was a doctrinal issue, if one of them was teaching a false gospel or a false concept, Paul would have addressed it. So what seems to be happening here between these two women in the church is a matter of opinion, a secondary peripheral issue, or a matter of personality. And all God's people said, yep. Because I don't know if you knew this, but church people can be difficult. There's even a movie out about church people. Don't look around at anybody else because you are church people. <laughs> Okay? Some years ago, I was a new Christian, and I was the drummer on the worship team, and I just was beginning to understand the things of God and the gospel, and, and I was a brand new believer in many ways, and the worship leader said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to this church on a Sunday night. Would you come and play drums? And I said, okay. And so, you know, we got together, and we were at this evening service, and I remember we did a few songs together, and you could cut the tension with a knife in this church building turned out that this evening service was about this divided church. Their pastor had left. Everybody was mad at one another. And we were doing the worship leading into a visiting pastor trying to talk sense into these people. And I remember after the last song was done, the piano player began to just kind of softly play as the pastor addressed the congregation. And he turned to the piano player and said, stop playing. We don't need that right now. And the piano player was like <laughs> sinking down <laughs> on his piano bench. It was very uncomfortable. As he began to address the congregation, it became crystal clear that they were mad at each other, angry. There was a church split. He was basically challenging them to stop it. It was very uncomfortable. And it was my first taste of the opposite side of all the good things that can happen in churches. Church divides and church splits and people angry at one another. So Paul urging these two ladies key uh, phrase to live in harmony. Unresolved conflict brings anxiety if you're taking notes. Disharmony brings anxiety. 
And we're called in Romans 12, 18, if possible, as much as it depends on you and me, we are to live at peace with all people. Amen? Now, sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes people don't want to reconcile. They want nothing to do with you. Then there's nothing that you can do. But as much as it depends on you, our call is to live in harmony with people. If you have a, uh, a relationship right now that is chaotic, it's not harmonious, it's unnerving, especially if it's a close relationship. Many of you are married here. You know if your marriage is not going well, everything else makes you feel anxious. Why? Because that main relationship is discombobulated and it's going to bring anxiety. It could be a friendship. It could be something else. And so if you want less anxiety in your life, you've got to try to live in harmony with others. Harmony is defined as a consistent, orderly, or pleasing arrangement of parts. Uh, congruity, musically speaking, harmony is the blending of simultaneous sounds of different pitch or quality to make something beautiful and pleasing. You have an orchestra, when they're all harmonious, it's beautiful, right? But if they're not in tune, it's ugly and it hurts your ears and it causes the opposite. And so we don't want to become, as Paul said, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We want to have love push our relationships to healthy places. So you may need to reconcile with someone right now. Maybe you have anxiety over the potential of that meeting let me just tell you, the longer you let it go on, the more anxiety will come. Better to deal with it now. Better to just say, hey, can we talk about this? I don't want to have this tension in our relationship any longer. Verse 3. Indeed, true comrade. Uh, we don't know who that is. That could be Luke. Others believe it's Epaphroditus or one of the elders at the church at Philippi. Paul says, I ask you to help uh, assist these women is the idea who have shared my struggle, notice, in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. One point to think about is that these are all believers. All believers have their names in the book of life. That's where you want your name to be, right? These women had shared in the cause of the gospel. They were warriors. They had come alongside Paul in gospel work but now they were fighting, and the gospel was suffering as a result. Imagine the people in Philippi running across Euodia and Suntuke, and they can't get along, and they're trying to preach a gospel of peace in Philippi. This is what the devil does. He loves to get in the middle of relationships and thus muddy the waters of the gospel that we preach. Let's not do that. Let, let's try to be at peace with one another. And make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, the seed whose fruit is righteousness, James 3.18, is sown in peace by those who make peace. As best as you can, be a peacemaker. Paul says, look, these women are gospel warriors. They fought side by side with me in the gospel. Please encourage them to get along and to uh, get past this thing that just continues to stumble them both. Second imperative is found in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let's say it together. Again I say rejoice. rejoice. Right? So the second imperative is to have a life of constant rejoicing. 
Now, some of you would quickly respond. Some of the cynics in the crowd are going to say something like this, but I have nothing over which to rejoice. Answer that one. Well, it says rejoice in the Lord always. So here's something to think about. Let's just say that you were to survey your life right now and you would say, I, I got nothing. I can come up with nothing. Then begin to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in who he is, that he made the world and everything in it, that he sent his only son because he loved you so much that he died on the cross, that he defeated death, that he's at the right hand as your intercessor, that he loves you, that he loves you, that he loves you. Amen? You rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. If you want to remedy the worry in your life, you got to get joy back into your life. And rejoice is simply just an outflow of joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the oil of joy above his companions. He was a joyous person. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as it relates to what he was going to do on the cross. But he was a joyous person. He was the ultimate person filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Joy is something that we want to uh, model. It's the basic and constant orientation, says one writer, of the Christian life. An evidence of a relationship with the Lord. Make up your mind to rejoice. And you got to do it. You got to almost be defiant about it because that's how the verse reads. I will rejoice. You got to tell yourself. You got to do some healthy self-talk. If you're prone to to have the dark cloud over everything, oh, you know, well, if only if, uh, that person over there, uh, that person looked at me sideways. Did you see that? You're, just chill out, man. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that He loves you and He loves that person as well. Here's a, a few uh, tastes of these kinds of ideas. Psalm 31, 7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you've seen my affliction. You've known the troubles of my soul. Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Listen, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. Garland as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what the Lord has done for me. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. We just have to be almost defiant about it. I will rejoice and be glad. This is the day that the Lord has made. Remember I shared with you, uh, George Mueller said his first business every day was to make his heart happy in the Lord. Look, if I look at the circumstances of this world, I watch a half an hour of Fox News, uh, I am not in a rejoicing mood, right? But I've got to rejoice in the Lord because he is my salvation and he's ultimately, ultimately in control. Just one other side note. Soul winning will cause you to rejoice as well. You get your eyes off yourself on other believers. You pray for them. You try to win souls uh, and Luke 15, 32, Jesus says uh, in the story, we had to rejoice and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Some years ago when the church first started, I was wet behind the ears and we, we made some mistakes about how we handled some things in leadership and 
I told a friend, a pastor friend of mine, I was in my 30s, and I said, yeah, we're having some issues, and some people are mad about this and that. He said, Pastor Michael, it sounds to me like you guys need to get refocused on evangelism. Because everybody's getting nitpicky about all these little things that in the end don't really matter. Amen? We need to get, be about the Lord's business. Some of you have met the couple called the Nitpickersons. Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Nitpickerson, have you met them? Well, the Nitpickersons can nitpick everything to death. And if you find that you're there and all you can do is look around and be critical, you got to do a double take about where your heart is and where you want to be headed in your Christian life. So there's the first two. Look at verse 5. It says, Let your forbearing spirit, 4 or 5, be known to all men the Lord is near. It says in uh, the NIV, Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is the third imperative that is to be gentle or reasonable. The ESV puts it this way. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The third imperative is actually required of an elder overseer. It is to be gentle and reasonable. This introduces a relational quality that rejoicing produces. It's the very stuff that we see in Jesus. He was gentle and lowly in heart. If you find yourself being unreasonable with people, that will build anxiety in you and in others. Let me illustrate. Perhaps your expectations of people has become so unrealistic that they can't be comfortable around you, nor are you comfortable around them. That's because your expectations have become unreasonable. You've all heard about unreasonable expectations. Now, I'm not talking about lowering the bar or anything like that. I'm talking about being a reasonable, gentle person. If you are unreasonable, if when you walk into a dwelling, everybody's trying to, you know, stand straight and be worried, and you got everybody walking on eggshells, you're not walking in the spirit, brother, sister. And I would just say to you, with all due respect, stop it. Stop it. Maybe you need to watch a little comedy and stop taking yourself so seriously. Look, God's got a sense of humor. He called all of us, right? <laughs> We, we got to lighten up a little bit. We, we got to relax on people a little bit. You know, if you are an unreasonable person, you will push people away and you will heighten the level of anxiety around you and everybody else. The third imperative is just be reasonable. Let, let it be made known to all men. If, if someone was going to assess you, would they say you're reasonable, relaxed, fair, and gentle? Or is it the opposite? Now, the Lord is near is also in the verse. And you say, why is that there? Well, the Lord is near could be a reference to the second coming. But I think in context here, the Lord is near is a reminder that you can do it because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Amen? We'll get to that next Sunday. So here's the point. The Lord is near. The Lord is your helper. You, you might say, I'm so used to dealing with this person this way that I tense up before we even begin to interact. Well, the Lord is near, and he's your helper. And he won't leave you, nor will he forsake you. So ask him in. Ask for his help before something happens. Take a, take a, a, a minute, uh, take a breath at the door, and breathe in a little bit more of the power of God. Everybody with me? You know you're going to walk into something difficult. This is what you need to do. 
The Lord is near to all who call upon him. This is what we need to know. Now here's our title verse, and we will anchor in verse 6 for a moment. It says, be anxious, be troubled, uh, don't worry, is the idea. Be anxious for nothing. Now you say, how can I be anxious for nothing? I feel like I'm anxious for everything. Here's the remedy in the verse. But in everything, by prayer and supplication or petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety often emerges because we have unresolved tension. We can't uh, even uh, disassociate this from the tension between these two women in the church. So I need to now direct the tension, the anxiety, to prayer. The third imperative, don't worry about anything, or literally you can have it this way, stop worrying, just stop it. Don't let your worry snowball into a whole mound of anxiety and worry. Now, Paul is not telling us, brethren, just to repeat it as a mantra. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. He's actually saying to take your anxiety to prayer. This is the key. Switch the worry into a petition. Now, how do you do that? Well, let's just say, here's your life, and, and let's, let's look at a funnel and constantly you have anxiety coming into your life, right? Uh, overwhelming thoughts, overwhelming this, overwhelming that. Instead of funneling them down into you, where you just sit there and bite your nails and think about all the scenarios, you funnel them back up to God. This is the idea. Everything that you would worry about now becomes an area of petition. All worry turns into worship. Example. Lord, I'm worried about this relationship right now, and uh, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to ask you to help me to have your heart towards this person. I'm asking you to help us resolve these issues. You begin to move the worry into an idea of worship, which is a synonym for the word prayer. You remember the story of Martha and Mary, the two sisters? Jesus came over to their house. Martha was cooking a meal for the Lord. Now, how many of you are angry cooks? Can I get a witness? Anybody an angry cook out there? Come on, admit it. It's good for the soul. Okay, this is kind of what I go through when I'm cooking, at least for a large party. I don't want anybody touching anything because I'm in control of the kitchen. Don't, don't stick your finger in that sauce. It's not ready yet. What are you doing in here? Go! And then, when nobody's around, I get angry that nobody's helping me. <laughs> it's this double-edged sword. Where is everybody? Why am I all alone? Can't somebody butter the garlic bread? And then they come in. Don't touch that knife! They don't know what to make of me. That is Martha. Worried and concerned about everything. And that's what Jesus said to her. Martha, Martha. You are worried and concerned about so many things. And from the kitchen, she said, tell that sister of mine to get in here and help me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Your sister, that's annoying you right now, has chosen the better part. She's chosen to worship instead of worry. Now, it's not like the meals don't need to be cooked and everything, but you all get the point. Jesus is saying, look, you're so overwhelmed by worry, but only one thing is needed. And your sister chose the one thing. 
This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. My eyes are on the prize. Jesus, how many, Mary had a sense of the moment. How many times am I going to get to hear Jesus preach? Yeah, there's a lot of other things to do right now. How many of you are like this? You're trying to focus, but the 17 other things that got to get done are rotating. <laughs> right? Stop it. Only one thing is really needed right now. You'll get to those 17 other things. They'll be waiting for you. Y'all know that, right? They'll be waiting. You don't have to worry about them for them still to be waiting for you. So you focus right now on the Lord. I want you all to turn to Matthew 6. This is the last verse parallel I'll have you turn to, but it's very important. It's Jesus talking about worry, and this is probably where Paul picked up these concepts, no doubt, since it's the Word of God. Matthew chapter 6. Now Jesus is talking about you can't serve two masters, and then he says in 625 of Matthew, For this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life as to what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life, Matthew 6, 25, more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? NIV puts it this way, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Skip down to 31. Don't be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But do what, brethren? Seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things, the idea, all the things that you worry about will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and for me. So we, we rush around, right? I mean, we're one of the most uh, uh, incredibly blessed generations that's probably ever walked the planet. In a country of plenty, even though we've had some bumps lately, we have most things at our fingertips, let's face it, and yet we're anxious. And we have to begin to ask some questions, Lord, what's wrong? And the, the, the issue is our eyes are on the wrong things. Back to Philippians, we'll finish it. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, Psalm 94, 19, your consolations delight my soul. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Oh, Lord, help me. Final imperative is to pray with thanksgiving. Prayer is the idea of also of worship. It's prayer is the Christian antidote to worry, says Boyce. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. 
And supplication, prayer with thanksgiving, our final verse here, means to petition your needs before God. Something I put in my notes, it may help you. Thank you, Lord, that I can bring this to you right now. You are big enough and more than capable to handle it. I'm going to rejoice that I can come to my great high priest in prayer. You are able to pour out the grace that I need right now. I'm going to pray with thanksgiving, anticipating your answer. Thankfulness is the posture of grace, and it helps me to overcome worry. So I'm going to bring this to you, Lord. And I know some of you say, yeah, I do that, but then I keep taking it back. Well, the Bible says to cast all your cares to him because he what? He cares for you. So he wants you to cast them and leave them. The very next verse after 1 Peter 5, 7 that I just quoted talks about an enemy who goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't you get the idea that he does that largely through worry? Almost to bring you to the sidelines being so overwhelmed with what you can't control anyway. And so the remedy is to cast all your care to him because he loves you. You do it with a thankful heart. And a promise comes to us, and this is the final verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, the shalom of God, if you will, from the Greek to the Hebrew, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now when you do this, brethren, a promise follows. You petition, you worship with thanksgiving, you worship instead of worry, and here's what God promises. He will grant you a peace it's literally the peace of God that will be your well-being. You don't have to understand it. It's beyond your comprehension. You just receive it. Here's the metaphor. It will guard your heart as a garrison. In first century Philippi, a Roman colony, the people were used to seeing Roman garrisons in their gleaming military uh, uniforms, and they were always present to protect the city from a, an assault of an army. God says, when you do this, I will put a garrison in front of your heart and your mind to guard you from the assaults of worry, anxiety, and whatever the enemy will throw your way. I will guard your heart, and I will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? What a beautiful promise that we can stand on. A shalom will come from God. A well-being from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I don't have to figure it out. It's, it's the peace that God dwells in. He's not anxious about anything, and it's his peace that he grants me experientially as I stand upon the word of God. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. John 14, 27, Jesus is our peace. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for these four imperatives. We reflect on them to stand firm, to rejoice in the Lord always, to be reasonable people, and to be thankful prayers, to turn every worry into an opportunity for worship and prayer. To supplicate, that is to pray and bring the petitions to you, O Lord. And the promise is a peace that passes our understanding, which will guard us against the assaults of the world, the flesh, the enemy, and even us being our own worst enemy, Lord. Oh God, would you help us? I sense the, the need in the room. I sense the need in my own heart to walk 
in the reality of these verses. Would you help us, Lord? Help us to take a moment right now to let that word, those wonderful, true, beautiful promises, to trickle and move down into our souls. Let us have a moment of Selah, where we can say, this is possible. All things are possible through Christ. I can do them through him. So help us, Lord, this week. Maybe even if we're just a little less anxious, that'd be a good step. But it does say to be anxious for nothing. So help us, Lord. Help us to stand firm, to rejoice, to be gentle and reasonable people. Help us to be more people of prayer. Instead of us worrying about everything, let us give you our worries and our concerns. You care for us. You love us. You've proven that love over and over again. Help us to be anchored in that love. We thank you, Father. I thank you for this beautiful congregation. I pray for every soul. I pray for those who may not know you yet that this would be their moment of salvation to come to the one who died in their place. I would uh, just urge you to call out to him to save you if you're not saved. If you're a prodigal, to rededicate your life. And if you are someone who's been overwhelmed by worry and anxiety. I pray that you'd receive the promise of peace for you right now. It is yours. Receive it. Bathe in it. Stand in it. Thrive in it. I pray that this week you'll experience a peace that passes your understanding and that gives you a beauty and lightens the load of your week ahead.